Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. Hello, and welcome to The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, a podcast that is based on my book from 2013. My name is Riley Haas. I am the author of that book. And this is an attempt to turn it into an audiobook or a podcast, uh, initially inspired by Mike Duncan's History of Rome and Revolutions, and now hopefully a little more inspired by both uh, Behind the Bastards and My Dad Wrote a Porno, but hopefully somewhere happy medium in between the two of them. So I've been joined by uh, two of my friends today, Dave and Jonathan, and I am going to try to convince them of my argument that the Beatles are the greatest uh, rock band of all time based on my 2013 book, which I've made some slight adjustments to and may make adjustments on the fly because I already, rereading it, I already hate it. And today we're going to be doing the, the introduction. So this is the first episode. And without any further ado, let's get started. So this podcast is not a story of the Beatles, nor is it an attempt to explain the entire cultural impact of the Beatles. All it is, rather, is an attempt had a reasonable argument to put the Beatles in their rightful place in the cultural history of the world as the most important quote-unquote rock act in history. I did air quotes there. This is a position that can never be equaled because now rock has pretty much lost its meaning. Rock is now something so big as to be practically without definition, except that it's not classical music, it's not jazz, and so it's not electronica, it's not hip-hop, so forth. So all this is an attempt at showing that the Beatles really are the greatest rock band of all time, and I am not going to be reaching into the biographies of the members to find reasons why they did things. I will not be trying to impose a narrative that attempts to explain how they did things or anything like that. I'm not worrying about Beatlemania. Instead, I am just trying to analyze the Beatles music in the context in which it was made. Sound good? Okay. Yep. So, first of all, the thesis. The thesis of the book and the podcast is that culture evolves in time and there are certain moments in time when dominant cultural movements in culture forever fracture into different pieces. And we can never go back to before uh, the fracturing, when there was just one or a couple of movements. The Beatles' central place in the history of rock music is because they were the main creative and commercial force at the center of one of these moments. So before I get to their place, I want to talk about some things that happened in the past. So if you look at the history of Western high art music, aka classical, again, air quotes, which are a great thing to do on a podcast, there is a similar moment as there is with jazz. And there probably has been with hip-hop as well. I just don't know what that would be because I don't know anything about hip-hop. So European high art music evolved from something called plain song. And this was replaced uh, by more sophisticated Renaissance music. Renaissance music in turn was replaced by even more sophisticated Baroque music. And then there was this reaction to Baroque music in the 17th century and into the 18th. And it was replaced, or sorry, in the 18th century. And it was replaced by simpler, more melodic classical music. And then a further reaction to classical music created romantic music. And all through that, there was just one type of music for like 80 years and then would be replaced by a new one and over and over again for centuries. However, what happened with romantic music is that it didn't follow the pattern. Instead of being replaced by one new dominant genre, romantic music fractured into many different pieces. It fractured into impressionism. If you don't know impressionism, that is music that is sort of doesn't have a direction. It's more trying to create a mood. It's not headed somewhere. You don't have a linear buildup from the beginning to the end of the piece. It also fractured into um, 
something called modernism, which has to do with the crisis of tonality when people realize they could move outside of traditional tonal structures. And that later turned into something called serialism. And there's a whole bunch of other things. And the story of 20th century high art music is one of many different approaches, including revivals of all the movements that came before uh, this fracturing. And we can never go back to a time when there was basically 80 years of one genre and then 80 years of another genre. And the same thing, exact same thing happened in jazz. We had traditional jazz in the late teens and the 20s, and it evolved out of the collision of slave songs and European instruments, among other things. And it's actually that collision also produced the blues and country, but like jazz was the big like art form, quote unquote, out of it. And that evolved into big band, where the bands got bigger and bigger and bigger and sort of more sophisticated. But then, uh, just like with romantic music fracturing in a bunch of different pieces, big band fractured in a bunch of different pieces. So there was bebop, which is now called bop, or mainstream jazz, which was a reaction to the size, both the size of big band bands and also the short length of compositions. But there were other things that happened too. Uh, you got hard bop, you got Afro-Cuban, and some other things, uh, cool jazz. And then later on, you had free jazz, jazz fusion, and many, many, many other uh, genres that popped up over the ensuing decades. So what I'm saying is that this happened with rock music as well, but it happened in an even shorter period than with jazz. And this podcast is about how the Beatles were the central force, both in the establishment of the dominant cultural movement of pop rock, but also the fracturing. So it's like they were there at the beginning and the breakup at the same time. There's no one in classical and there's no one even in jazz who was there for both of those things. You know, you, you disagree with that. Um, I think to a certain extent, I might disagree with some of the conception of jazz, especially around the time where Bob Church started going into hard bop into free jazz. There were definitely people that would have been instrumental in that transfer that had quite expressive careers throughout that time. I, I mean, before uh, that, Louis Armstrong did not play free jazz, right? So what I'm saying is that the Beatles' role have a role similar to Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis. I get what you're saying. It's just you convince me because it's not sitting well with me right now. Okay. <laughs> so if we go to so-called classical music, Bach died in 1750 before Mozart was even born. Classical, I'm definitely granting you because those, yeah. those time spans were quite expansive and quite moving or well, slow moving. Jazz had a much shorter evolutionary period, I guess. Yeah. Like, I mean, like you start to look at probably the roots of jazz in twenties and teens, the teens. Yeah. And even that I would not necessarily call most of what was being produced in that time. Jazz. Yes. Uh, it would definitely like blues. They, sure. They didn't even spell it like that. They call it jazz. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like jazz itself. Maybe 30s, maybe. No, the 20s, the 20s. Absolutely, yeah. the 20s. Absolutely, just 20s. I can, I'll send you a book. <laughs> Listen, there's no way that Louis Armstrong's 20s music and tons and tons of other people are not jazz. There's no way on no planet is that not jazz. It is accepted Fine. by everybody. Jazz begins some point between like 1917 and like 1921. Yeah, I mean, but but by that token, rock and roll didn't begin with the Beatles either. No, it didn't. It absolutely didn't. And I will explain what I'm talking about with that as we go. The reason I brought up 
Bach and Mozart and Beethoven is they were all, you know, arguably the three most famous composers of Western art music. They barely overlapped each other, right? So things were very different back then. Bach died in 1750 before Mozart was born. Beethoven was only 21 when Mozart died, etc. There's some of this in jazz. So Louis Armstrong, he played trad jazz and big band. That's all he played. Now Mm -hmm. he, he died much after other people came around, but he died. Sorry, but he only played those two genres. Duke Ellington didn't really play traditional jazz. He he's a big band guy. And then he did dabble in other things after the fracturing, but he was always more conservative than everybody else. Right? Like, if you listen to Duke Ellington music from the 50s, it sounds mm-hmm. kind of like Duke Ellington music from the 40s and 30s. Yeah. Whereas the people who caused the fracturing, whether it's Thelonious Monk, whether it's Charlie Parker, whether it's Dizzy Gillespie, none of those guys were around for the birth of jazz. Like they were alive, some of them, maybe, but they weren't yeah. playing. And Miles Davis, who is the most famous, arguably the most famous jazz musician outside of Louis Armstrong, and mm. I don't know who. Who's more famous? Yeah, nowadays, maybe Miles Davis is more famous than Louis Armstrong. I mean, um, also, like, not having Coltrane mentioned, there's travesty, my friend. I mean, there's a million jazz musicians I could... Yeah, but I mean, like, to say Coltrane is not one of the greats and not at the same level of Miles is... Well, I'm talking about fame. I'm not talking about... Uh, I'm also talking about fame. I would 100% put John Coltrane up there with Miles Davis for fame and... Not just lame, but influential in the fracture of jazz as well. Well, no, those two guys came later. Like Coltrane in particular, yeah. Coltrane didn't lead a group until the late fifties, right? Miles Davis no, but, led a group in the Coltrane also, late forties. Also started in in Bob. Yes, very much. He started in Bob. But Bob. Bob already existed when Coltrane yeah. got into music, right? Whereas, and Bob already existed when Miles Davis got into music. But Gillespie and Parker and Monk, who essentially invented Bob together, supposedly, so the story goes. You know, we're we're just slightly a few years older than those guys, right? Just a few years. My point being is that there's worlds of difference between okay. what Louis Armstrong was doing and even what Duke Ellington mostly did and what these guys did, right? And they were different. Like they were different gen- even though I don't know what the age difference between Duke Ellington and Miles Davis is, but it, it might be it might might have been 20 years. I don't know. And yet it's like they were from different worlds because things changed so much in the 40s for jazz. Okay. And so my contention will be that the Beatles were around for more of that on both sides of it. And I will explain why as we go. But before we do that, I also want to talk about what I think of when I mean greatness, because of course I'm making an argument about greatness. So I want to just emphasize that greatness and something you like are different and and i understand that that's obvious to a lot of people but it isn't actually obvious to a lot of people there are plenty of people certain critics uh for example who who think what they like equals greatness their subjective experience equals objective greatness and i have a huge problem with that so i just want to say right off the bat i am only one of seven billion people and and i have favorites like everybody else and this is not an attempt to claim that my former favorite band of all time is the best band of all time. They used to be my favorite band. They haven't been my favorite band for many years. I want to point out that just because this one album or one song has a profound effect on me at one moment in life, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has an effect on others. 
And I would strongly suggest that people who do think that's true are sort of missing something in that. There, I think we can find somewhat tangible things to call artistically great. It's not entirely subjective. We have to recognize something, some kind of mutual acknowledgement of greatness. So I'm trying to do that with the Beatles. And I'm trying not to rely on my feelings back when they were my favorite band. So it's my hope that you will see the Beatles as I see them, not as a former favorite band, but as a clearest and most signal contributor to what has become pop rock. So before I get to that, though, I want to say that I used to take the greatest of the Beatles for granted. I used to get in drunken arguments with people about the Beatles' greatness uh, in a writing group I was in in Hamilton. But I thought people were arguing with me just because we were all drunk and, uh, you know, it was the thing to do. But I actually had an experience. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I had an experience in Hamilton with a bunch of these people in my writer's group where they were like shocked that I felt this way. And I think that was very much true of people who were born a little bit after me. So in the mid 80s and later, and that it's really easy if you were born then to sort of miss the cultural trailblazers from the first three quarters of the 20th century. Most obvious reason is the Beatles weren't on a lot of radio a lot of the time, right? They're on oldies radio and some stuff on classic rock radio, but like, and they might, might maybe some of their, a couple of their videos might make it onto a music video channel back when we had music video channels. Uh, and now on YouTube, you can watch uh, this stuff. But I, I do think in this past decade, it's been a little more uh, prominent on the internet. The music critic Stephen Hyden has said that we live in a post-genre world. He said this like 15 years ago, I think, and I think it's more true than ever now. There are more genres and hybrids than any one person can count, and all these genres, they blend with other genres in so many ways that it's kind of mind-moggling at this point. And certainly, as I get older, it's even harder for me to figure it out. And you find that even people who claim to be reviving an old genre are often actually combining a couple genres when they claim to revive a genre. I find it really hard to tell what something is a big thing that I pointed out in the book was in the aughts. I'd read lots of music criticism with the word punk in it. Describe something. All sorts of music from folk to electronica would have the word punk as a, as a modifier. And I was like, does this even have a meaning anymore? And I think that because of this incredible diversification, the listener has more choice in music styles than any other time in history, which is great, but it's also very difficult to see where it all came from. And I, I do think, though, obviously, we live in a world that's super, super influenced by hip-hop more than anything at the moment. I think that up until a certain point when hip-hop sort of crested and became the dominant influence on music, before that, it was pop rock, and it primarily through what the Beatles did, but through many other people as well. So because we don't live in a world of bands anymore, I think it is also easy to look and think that maybe the Beatles aren't as important as they were but one of the things i would say is that like does that make bach any less important in the history of music just because no one's influenced by directly by bach anymore very few people i remember a few years ago a, a hip-hop historian took to twitter and shared this weird very bizarre study that claimed to show radio influence and uh he was using it, it first of all it was super selective they picked like four years and they picked very certain uh, radio stations and it was like they're trying to like supposedly analyze the similarity of music from one year to the next year. And they, it's funny, they actually picked years that were particularly unkind to the Beatles. And then like the, the guy was claiming that like, See, the Beatles aren't a big deal. Hip hop's a big deal. And I, I don't know whoever has ever claimed the Beatles were a big deal. I'm not sure they're saying hip hop isn't a big deal. But I just thought that was a really 
a weird thing to say and very indicative of a lot of the stuff that I heard at the time that when I wrote this book, because I was just like, I don't really understand. And to reiterate the point about Bach, Bach is still important in the history of music just because no one is like wanting to revive Bach at this very minute, right? So greatness. Let's let's try to figure out what it means. Let's talk about great men of history, for example. It's a sort of discredited theory now, but basically there's this idea that there's certain people that come along that are special, better than others. I think a lot of people reject that now, in part because we only saw part of the story, right? If you value human life above all the things, then it's really hard to look at the great men of history and admire them, right? Because most of them in, in killed a lot of people, like many of them, did, if not all. Of them. And we have a sort of, not that similar, but similar-ish idea in the arts where we sort of assume that geniuses pop out of the blue and they're unique and special and different than everybody else and they're sort of out of time and i think we should have a similar skepticism towards that idea i'm not a fan of the auteur theory when i was a kid i was a huge booster of stanley kubrick for example and i regularly failed to acknowledge any issues with his filmmaking just because i felt like it was cool that i'd seen all his movies and like it made me smarter than everybody else or something you know, now I, I realize like he's he's very, very flawed. And I think the Beatles are different in the sense that I'm, and I'm not trying to maintain that any of them are particular geniuses, though I think in some ways, you know, both McCartney and George Harrison have particular traits that I'm going to talk about later that I think mark them out as pretty talented musicians, but more that they really were in the right place at the right time and they the things they did changed the music. So it's sort of an opposite approach, I would say, to to a great men type of thing. I think a conception of greatness must be social in the arts, but in all areas. And it can't just be based on the opinions of a couple of scholars or critics. And it's important to, to sort of look at a broader historical picture. So I look at things that are transcendent, the notion that something lasts beyond its time. And that can be a, a problem because of course, there are times when we forget about people. There have been plenty of, just to stick with music, there have been plenty of people who've been forgotten and then rediscovered. I still think that music is better, tends to transcend more frequently, but it does, it does make it really hard to evaluate things in the moment. If you're trying to like, if you're, if you're judging artistic quality on transcendence, how the hell do you know if anything's good in the moment, right? You don't know if people are going to care about it in 15 years or, or 50. So we need other things in addition to transcendence. So one would be are there clear indications that whatever the cultural artifact is had an impact on contemporaries and people future on? So like, uh, like, is it influential? Does it have aesthetic quality? Not to get too far off topic, but there's an album from the early 80s called Generic Flipper by a hardcore punk band called Flipper that is probably one of the seminal albums in the development of grunge. And it is noisy and incompetent and kind of like from a sonic perspective, kind of awful. And though it was super huge, like massively influential on the Northwest punk scene and eventually grunge, it's also like most people are never going to listen to this thing. And I think it's important that there are things that are more appealing to people than others. And that, of course, is subjective. And then even though I mentioned influence before, there's also the notion of trailblazing. Like, were you the first to do something? So all those are the four things that I'm trying to keep in our minds while we talk about this. So for example, Bob Dylan 
in my humble opinion, was the greatest English language songwriter of the second half of the 20th century. And I think you can make an argument the whole century, but let's just say second half. Because people still talk about Bob Dylan now. His 80th birthday was literally like two weeks ago or a week ago. Uh, I participated in a, in a top 100 covers list, actually, on the internet. And people still cover his songs. He had numerous imitators. In fact, the problem, one of the problems with music in the 60s and 70s was so many people were trying to imitate Bob Dylan. You know, you had a lot of people who wrote some very silly words because they thought they were Bob Dylan. If you listen to some of his uh, most interesting and intricate lyrics, there's very few other people in the pop rock world who ever wrote lyrics like he did. And perhaps most importantly, he took the popular music world from singing about what I like to call cars, cars, and girls, to paraphrase the dictators, to literally anything. You know, once Bob Dylan became popular, you could write a song about anything you wanted. Before that, you know, you were singing about dancing and you were singing about romance, and you were singing occasionally about your motorbike. So I, I am going to argue that the Beatles had a, a similar impact on music, much more music rather than lyrics, though, uh, so the opposite of Bob Dylan. So the only other thing is, before we uh, continue, is that I want to mention is that one of the things that I think really gets lost now especially with reference to the Beatles, is how kind of shitty music was, <laughs> popular music was, in the late 50s and early 60s. You know, we, we listened to some songs here and there, but if you go back, if you just, you want to like have an experience, pick a week in like 1961 and find the top 10 for that week of singles in, in the UK or the US and go have a listen to all 10 of them you're going to be in for an experience. And one of the things that I think is key to our, our lack of appreciation about the Beatles is we don't remember this because most of the shit that existed at any given time, is it doesn't transcend. So we don't hear about it. And so we don't realize how unique and fresh something was at the time because we weren't exposed to that musical world. You know, there, there's a lot of really, really inane pop and rock music rock and roll and various other genres from the very early 60s and i i've gone and listened to some of it and i grew up on oldies radio that played a lot of it and it's 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 a it's a dark place so that is the introduction do either of you have any questions so far or or more pushback dave what me pushback never i guess one thing that i am curious about if comes into i guess the overall idea or the greatness of it, which probably would come in in later chapters, would be the idea of more the concept album. Because I'm tr like I'm trying to think of artists who were doing like the the larger concept albums prior to the Beatles, and like like post Beatles, I can think of a bunch of people who did these great yeah. schemes of the concept album, where you have like the whole like rock opera, whatever you want to call it, yeah, what it what it is now. But I'm like I'm trying to think of an artist that did something similar prior to the Beatles. I can tell um, you it it depends, but yeah. it, it it was uh, Johnny Cash had a few of them. Yeah, actually. it's 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 something that, that that's really kind of sticking in my head, and that's something that I think is would be interesting to explore down the way. Um, but I don't think I have any any additional pushback at this point because I think I've done that enough already for a bit. <laughs> I'll let you make your point before I start getting uh, getting into the weeds on things. All right. 
Yeah, just on the concept album, it also depends how you define it, right? Because lots of people yeah. label concept albums and you're like, like this is like just a bunch of songs that are like vaguely related to each other thematically. Is that a concept album? Some people think that is, and other people are like, no, it's got to have a plot like a rock opera, you know? And if that's true, then Sgt. Pepper is not a concept album. So, but I do know that Johnny Cash certainly was recording albums that have been retroactively labeled concept albums in, in the early 60s. And I wouldn't be surprised if some other, you know, there was some people in the folk country world who were telling stories, were stories, trying to arrange yeah. songs to tell larger stories. And that was a thing. It lacked the musical ambition, right? They were usually much more stripped down musically. They're, we're talking about folk and country, so there wasn't a yeah. lot of... Uh, I was just going to say just one point about what you're talking about, you know, in terms of one of the facets of greatness being you know, this trailblazing, you know, the first to do X, Y, Z uh, before anybody else, like, like how much of that is, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a point in time where not that they got lucky, but they happened to be in a, in a, you know, in a place in time where it wasn't as developed as say today. And so there's yeah. more opportunity for things to get, you know, for first to happen and and that kind of thing. And, and maybe you take like yeah. a really good band from today. And if they had been there in the 60s then you know they might have been just as good like 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 i struggle with that comparison to say okay well you know well like the beatles kind of you know they get they get uh, first dibs on this because they did all these things because nobody else had done yeah. any of these things you know before and does that really make them great or does that just make them kind of lucky in a way like well it does make them very lucky and i i mean i certainly am a huge believer in luck being a really under under uh, discussed part of all of this. Yes, Dave. I think to springboard off that idea, I'd also question resources. Yeah. Like if you look at points in time, this, this was a much more, for want of a better term, a resource intensive time to get an album out, especially to get the kind of acclaim that a band would get. Like not to say that there's not talent involved, but, you definitely like you needed to have a lot of money behind a record to get it out there to get it distributed in the versus, early 60s yeah to get the kind of world world like worldwide acclaim or even the playability like it was it it wasn't similar to 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 put it into into a perspective of today i was listening to a yokel on tiktok yesterday morning in COVID times decided he wanted to be a hip hop artist and he yeah. had some fantastic flows some wicked rhyme. He's whiter than white bread. And outside of a thing like TikTok, which is as problematic as it is, it's a, it's a platform that can get something out there to a lot of people regardless without a lot of outlay. I have a phone. I'm there. I can get yeah. something out there. And, Absolutely. you know, if, if you want to go, go in, into production value, that's a different thing. But trying to get a record recorded, you know, uh, oh, Christ, I almost said 100 years ago, and it's only like 80. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Six, like 60, 60, 60. 60. Oh, yeah, I guess 60. <laughs> but like trying to get a, a record recorded 60 years ago, it wasn't the case that there was like even even 20 years ago, the idea of a, of a basement studio yeah. was was something that was doable. Like I ran a, an eight track studio at the end of high school. Cause I had a, I had a digital eight and I rented all my equipment, but even, even still that was a, 
bit of an outlet. And at the radio station, like I'd, I'd work with bands there and, and what have you. But that was still, there was still a bit of an outlay there. And even that was yeah. democratized from 20 years previous, 30 years previous, where, you know, the cost of a, of a microphone was not an insignificant thing. And when you looked at, the, at what it would cost to track an album, to get an album yeah. pressed, and then to get it chipped out, how much of how many great acts got caught at a bottleneck where they couldn't necessarily generate the dollars and cents to get their art out there? I mean, like, even still to this day, I find fantastic music from a similar time spans or like a similar point in time where it's mid 60s, early 60s. That is from not from what would be, I don't know what the word is anymore, developed world, first world, industrial country, whatever. That is hugely influential in circles, but didn't get the same airplay, the same reach because they came from Argentina or wherever they just, and they just couldn't. So I think there's, there's two different points there. One is about distribution. One is about recording and the recording one. I think the recording thing is a little, there's a curve. It wasn't as expensive as you might think when the Beatles were first recording. It got really, really, really expensive once you got into multi-track. The Beatles were yeah. recording four-track initially, and then eight. Yep. Uh, six, so something I, I, I do get into later is 16 and 32 existed in the U.S. and didn't exist in the U.K. when the Beatles were recording. They just didn't yeah. know it existed. And they had no, ac- or they, if they knew, they had no access to it. So yeah. they did start the era of really expensive recordings like they themselves are a huge contributor to that because of beginning with revolver probably but their first album was recorded in a very very short period of time yeah and 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 there's a hundred percent a lot of great music that was recorded single track yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. you where you just you got a good condenser and you went down to wherever everyone gathered around and that's what you tracked with the jazz yeah. that we were arguing over whether or not it was jazz was recorded on one microphone live. Yeah. Like yeah. um if you go back to the um, a lot of the Smithsonian collections where you go back to roots folk or roots yeah. jazz and roots blues, almost all of that was one microphone, probably on a wax cylinder, yeah. if you're lucky. And yeah, like I think overall that I wonder about what who didn't make that bottleneck. Yeah. But the Beatles almost didn't. Yeah. Which is part of the story. Now I'm not getting into that because, like I said, I'm not going to deal with the biography. But like they failed recording editions, like many other people did. You know, famously, Decca competing label, like never got over the fact that they turned them down mm-hmm. because they they did turn them down. Distribution is different, right? Like you're the yeah. fact that they were in the UK. Like John was talking about luck, the fact that they were in the UK as opposed to somewhere else, as opposed to Germany where they played for a couple of years. You know, the fact that they were an English band, there are all sorts of things. The fact that they came around to sort of address your point, John, oh, that they came around when they did, and they just so happened to be of the right age to to be playing guitar in their teens when playing guitar in your teens in the UK was a thing that you could do and and get popular, uh, which was not true prior to, you know, a few years earlier. In fact, probably immediately earlier, you know. They were extremely lucky in access resources, but also in terms of the timing. You know, if they had been born a few years earlier, somebody else would be talking about somebody else, probably. 
And the same if they've been born a few years later. In fact, many people born their exact same, you know, their contemporaries, I think not to get too far off, but like, I don't, I don't want to, I'm a big uh, Rolling Stones fan, but I don't, so I don't want to bash the Rolling Stones, but the Rolling Stones didn't do what the Beatles did. And they were very similar in age uh, and they were living in a different city, but they were, you know, hung out in certain, in, in similar circles, maybe a little more like uh, musically cooler circles for the Stones because they were, they were, uh, you know, Charlie Watts was like playing in jazz bands and stuff sometimes. But anyway, I, I do think luck is very, very important. I don't want to discount that at all, but like history happens the way it happens. Right. And it's happened the way it's happened. And so they were lucky but they were the people who did it. And so that's what we are going to get into in future episodes, though not the next one, because the next one is going to be about music before the Beatles. And with that, I'm going to end this one.